this morning we're continuing our sermon series on called, and uh, we're talking about there is a plan. And I remember uh, when I was in seminary, uh, my wife gave to me a gift uh, the last semester I was in seminary. She uh, sent me on a treat, a retreat to the Abbey of Gethsemane there in Kentucky, located in Kentucky. It's a, a community of Trappist monks, and, uh, and they distinguish their life by living a life of prayer and hard work, and they usually keep silent as well. And so the Abbey is a great place to go if you're uh, wanting to hear from God or if you're trying to find yourself and trying to figure out where you're supposed to be in life. Uh, many go to the Abbey for retreat uh, and are looking for guidance from God and looking to find themselves. And one of the most famous monks of the Abbey of Gethsemane was a man named Thomas Merton, who's passed away, but he was an incredible writer. And in fact, if you ever come across one of Merton's books, I would encourage you to, to pick it up and read it. He's a great author. He was a, an interpreter and a champion of the Christian faith and of the way of Christ. And on one occasion, he asked himself the question, quote, who am I? And then he answered poignantly, I am myself. I am myself. It is a word actually spoken by God to us. There's nothing more important, you know, than to know who you are. Who are you? Identity. It is, the, I think, one of the crucial questions for us individually. I know, especially for college students, you're trying to figure out who you are as you're going through college, trying to discern, what am I going to study? What am I going to do in life? What is my calling? Where am I going? But for all of us, it doesn't matter what age, you know, we, we have to understand our identity, who we are are. It's a crucial personal issue, and it's also a crucial issue for the church, because I believe that the failure of the church in every age can be traced to a lack of identity. We forget who we are. Uh, we forget that there's a plan for our lives. We become so preoccupied with the, the minor functions and lesser matters of life that our, our primary function and being are forgotten. And so again, Peter has a great word for us. We, we said it last week, and I'm going to say it again this week. We're going to say some of the same things we talked about last week to remind us again because we forget our identity. And here's what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, as we look at this text, we're going to look at it a little more in depth today, but I want us to understand the setting in which Peter was writing this letter because I, I think it will help assist us as we uh, dig into this scripture. Uh, Peter was writing to Christians who are facing slander and persecution. Nothing new. It's still the same today, but, but they were also Christians in exile. And this was uh, like many letters in our, our New Testament, Paul's letters and Peter's, uh, it was a circular letter. It was actually written to a church, and they were to read it. They would off, oftentimes they'd copy it, and then they'd pass that letter along to the next church. And it kind of go in a in a circular area, and that's in that area of where that that letter was written. And this was the way Peter's letter was written. It was written to the church, uh, possibly or most likely a certain church, but then they would pass it along. And the letter's purpose was to fortify 
these Christians and enable them to stand fast in their Christian identity and in their commitment. And what an encouraging word this must have been for them as they read these words. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These Christians knew what Peter was talking about. Uh, Once they had not been a people, they were just heathens, some of them pagans. There were Jews as well, and we have to understand that about this letter, that he's writing to both Jews and those Gentiles who are coming in. But they, they also understood that they were not a people, that they were being persecuted. They, they had at one time relied upon themselves, and now they had become recipients of God's grace and mercy. And the entire passage here in Peter is rooted in uh, Old Testament theology, and specifically the idea of covenant, this concept of covenant. Peter is really uh, pushing this, this idea of covenant. Now, you can't understand the Old Testament, or the Bible for that matter, unless you understand the concept of covenant. The, the people of God were these people with whom God had made a covenant. And so we read throughout Scripture these covenants this covenant that God has made with the earth and with us. And, and just a, a high-level reminder, you know, God made a covenant uh, with Adam and Eve and then with Noah, and then he destroyed the earth and built it back, and he made a covenant with a man named Abraham. Remember that? And he said, you and your offspring will be a great nation, Israel, and I've chosen you to be a blessing so that you can bless the rest of the world. And so there's this covenant language And here the whole Old Testament uh, throughout is this idea of God's covenant with us and how we break that covenant and how God is trying to renew that covenant with us so that we won't break it and that we'll be faithful. And so this passage in 1 Peter is is covenant language. In fact, uh, verse 10 that we uh, just read right there, uh, he quotes almost exactly from the prophet Hosea. And in Hosea, we we read these words. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And again, from Peter, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's taking you back to the book of Hosea, a great book of scripture that reminds us of how we broke covenant and how God uh, rejected us because we rejected him, but that he didn't completely reject us, that he wanted to restore us again to him. And we looked uh, at this passage from First Peter last week, but I want us to continue uh, looking at it again this morning. And as we ask uh, three questions and we look at three specific pieces, the first is, who are we? And then what is our function? And then finally, uh, what is our part versus God's part or our part versus God's power? And Eugene Peterson, who wrote uh, a a version of the Bible called The Message, it's a translation. It's a great uh, translation. He also wrote, uh, he's uh, written several books, but one of the books he wrote was on discipleship. And specifically, this book was on how uh, discipleship in in an age of the quick fix. uh, But he took as his title of the book uh, Nietzsche's phrase, uh, a long obedience in the same direction. And in that book, he said this. 
In going against the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful. Disciple and pilgrim. Disciple says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We're in a growing learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, but rather in the work site of a craftsman. We do not acquire information of God, about God, but skills in faith. Think about that as you think about yourself as a, as a disciple, an apprentice to Jesus. I love that image, uh, learning to be like and think like and act like Jesus. And that image of apprentice uh, resonates with me for some reason. I just really love how that uh, feels, that we must be alive in Christ. We must reflect, reflect the master to whom we are apprenticed. We must be able to do the things the master has shown us. And the other word that uh, Peterson uses is pilgrim. And, and when we think of pilgrim, there's things that come to mind. But uh, the word pilgrim des- describes us as a people who spend our lives going someplace. That we are on a pilgrimage. We are going to God. And whose path for getting there is, is the way through Jesus Christ. Uh, we realize that this world is not our home and that we are set out for the Father's house. That we are pilgrims. And we have to think of this not only in terms of individual Christians, but as the church. And this is how Peter writes, that we are a body of Christ. So we ask the question, who are we as Christians of the church? And we need to get this straight because we've been experiencing, I think, an identity crisis as the church. The church, especially in America over the past 20, 30 years, has uh, has suffered from a lack of identity. We have forgotten who we are and it's paralyzed us, uh, leaving us as a people who are not very effective oftentimes. Uh, get this, I've read stats like this before to you. You might have heard them, but at, think about this. At the start of the 20th century, that's a little over 100 years ago, only 10% of the world's Christians lived in the southern continents and in the east, and 90% of the world's Christians lived in North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Today, though, at least 70% of the world's Christians live in the non-Western world. 70%. More Christians worship in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than in all of the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Britain, Europe, and North America combined. You know what the, the Anglican church is? It's the church of England. More, more Anglicans are in Nigeria than all of England, America, and Europe combined. There are more Baptists in the Congo than in Britain. There are more people in church every Sunday in communist China than all of the Western Europe. And as I've said to you before, in, a, in about two years, there'll be more Methodists in Africa than there will be in America. So this, in, this question is important for us because I think we have forgotten. And remember what I said last week? I reminded us We are the plan of God. We are the plan. And Peter is rather clear about this. He said this. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And that phrase, God's own people, literally means a people of God's possession. 
We are a people of God's possession. As Christians, our relationship to God is unique. As a church, we are God's people, his possession. We remember how God said to Israel first, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Even in the Old Testament, who are we? We are the church. We are chosen people, chosen by God, called into redemptive being by God himself. Think about it. This is an amazing thing for us to think about. If if you struggle, again, I said it last week, if you struggle with identity, who you are, I would have you turn to this and meditate on this idea. We are God's chosen possession. He has chosen us. That should transform, that should make you tremble at the thought of it. We have been chosen by God. If that's who we are, then what is our function? And Peter is so excited about what he says here in, in this letter that sometimes he forgets to use uh, commas and periods. It's just kind of like a long run-on sentence. It's a uh, run-on sentence. It's English teacher's worst nightmare. But, but, but Peter says this, and he kind of just stumbles over his words as he's speaking. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we put commas in there, but Peter just threw it out on the page. But our identity and our function in one sentence right there, our identity, God's own people, our function to declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are witnesses, ministers, missionaries, all of us Christians. Now, if you were here last week, you're saying, you're saying the same thing I said last week. You said last week. Yes, I am actually. Because some of you might not have gotten it last week. Some of us need to hear it again. Uh, and, and, and we debate so many times, what is the, the function, the purpose of the church? And it's, it's kind of comical at times because we debate this, but it's fairly clear. It's underscored throughout the New Testament, especially by Jesus' words. The function, go in, into the world, preach the gospel, you know, make disciples. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Our proclamation of the wonderful Deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is by word, but is also by deed and sign. It is by our actions. In fact, our mission statement, it says this, we are to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Are you fulfilling your mission, your function, your identity? You know, part of us, again, we, we struggle with this, and there's a there's a There's a theory that has been developed, and it's called this idea of cognitive dissonance. And I don't know if you've heard of this before, but cognitive dissonance is this idea. It's a simple concept. It refers to this awareness of the big gap between what I believe, my ideals, and what I actually do. Does that make sense? So what I believe and what I do, my goals and my deeds, that gap in between that is the cognitive dissonance. I say that I love God and I want to do everything for Him, but I spend no time with God. There's the cognitive dissonance between our beliefs and our actions. We have, we know, but we don't act. We have knowledge, but our souls are not burning with a faith that won't let us sit still. The church has suffered from cognitive dissonance for far too long. And our community and our world is suffering 
because of it. Are we transforming the world? And as I think about that, I, I think this following video will help illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's show that. suffered from some cognitive dissonance, did he? He, he? he forgot his purpose when he was outside the walls of his shop, who he was created to be, what he was gifted at. How many of us forget the same things when we're outside of the walls of the church? We, we forget that there is a plan and we are called to be the plan, not just here, but in the world. The function of the Christian is gathered up in one of the most signal doctrines of the Protestant church. And that's this idea of the priesthood of all believers. It's our most talked about and our least practiced doctrine. I said it last week, we are all priests. Every person here today who claims to be a Christian is a priest. And what is the function of a priest? It's, it's twofold. It's first we speak to the people for God, 
That's our primary task. Every one of us is a priest, and we have the opportunity and responsibility of speaking to the people for God. He forgot that, didn't he? But there's a second expression of our function as priests, and that's to speak to God for the people. Not only do we speak to the people for God, we speak to God for the people, and that's our our ministry of prayer and intercession, praying for those around us, praying for those that we interact with on a daily basis. And, And that should become the rhythm of our lives, speaking to the people for God and speaking to God for the people. The gospel is not real in our lives, though, until it becomes personal. But for us to actually speak to people for God, we're going to actually have to be in a relationship with God and know his word and know what it says. But I love it when I see people of faith in the world living their purpose, living in their identity and function. I love it when people stop people and, and, and pray with them in public. I love it when people are, are communicating the gospel in a way that isn't offensive. It is our privilege, it's our responsibility to pray and to be interceding for others. I can't even begin to imagine what would happen if, if I and others who have become God's people would begin, become more intentional and sensitive about who they are and what their function is. We are a priesthood of all believers. That's our part. Now, if you're feeling inadequate and unworthy about this calling and, and to be a priest and to speak to the people for God and to God for the people, and then, you know, that's okay. Because we are unable within our own resources to do that. And, and this is where we sometimes get tripped up. And none of us are fully equipped to do that. That's the way it ought to be. That's part of that faith aspect. That we, we, we step out in faith. But this brings us to our last part. Our part versus God's power. This is the part of the plan, again, that, that we get hung up on so often. And, and that's because we forget our part and we think that we have God's part or God's power. We do have his power that helps us. But let me see if I can help us understand this. First, let's, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John for guidance. And uh, Kimmy read it just a while ago. John 1, 45 and 46. It's a great story. In fact, this is a John 1, uh, just a, a fantastic chapter. In fact, I'd encourage you to read it again this week. But hear this story. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. In this first chapter of John, we see the plan. And in fact, in John chapter 1, there are there are kind of two stories happening kind of almost simultaneously. Uh, and and, and here, here's what it is. Jesus meets a man named Andrew. And Andrew follows Jesus. And then Jesus meets Philip, who also begins to follow Jesus. And then Andrew goes to Peter, and Philip goes to Nathaniel, and they both make the same challenge to them, come and see. What was their part? They made the invitation. Come and see. Throughout the Gospels, we see those who follow Jesus make the invitation to others to follow Jesus, to come and see. Converts make new converts. 
We speak about what we know in Jesus and invite others to come and see. But here's where we get hung up, and this is the important part. Our part is the invitation. Come and see. We're not responsible for the conversion. Can you take a deep breath in that? I don't have to convert anyone. That's not my job. Did you know that? As Christians, our job is not to convert people. Our job is the invitation. Who does the converting? Who? Yeah, Christ. Jesus does the conversion. We invite. Doesn't that take pressure off of you? You don't have to convert them. You don't have to worry about if they're going to be converted. What can you do? You can pray for them. You can pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to their heart so they are converted. What's your part? The invitation. Your part's the invitation. We invite, God convicts. We invite, God converts. We invite, God saves. Nathaniel must come and see. But here's the cool thing. Jesus has already seen him. If you read later on in the story, you see that Nathaniel comes and, and Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the tree. I've already seen you. See, that's the part about God is that God is already seeking us out. God is the one seeking us out. And so when we make the invitation, it's an invitation to what God is already doing in someone's life. And they're responding to that invitation. We remember that Jesus sees us before we see him. Jesus seeks us before we seek him. Our part of the plan is to hand out the invitation. Come and see. And here's the other cool thing. We shouldn't even have to worry about the objections that people make. See, people will always make objections to the gospel. Here, Nathaniel, what did he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Even, even back then, people were making objections. That's okay. That's nothing new. That's nothing we should worry about. It shouldn't stop us from making the invitation. In fact, Nathaniel does what most people do. He balks at the invitation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of the church? Can Jesus really transform my life? What does he say? Come and see. We make the invitation. We don't worry about the outcome. We are called to the plan of inviting. That's our, our function. That's how we do it. That's, that's our part in it. We don't have to worry about God's part. He'll take care of that. But so many of us get tripped up because we think we have to convert and we fail if we don't convert someone. No, you just make the invitation. Let God take care of that part. You be faithful to your part. Let's pray.